Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our panel discussion on commissions of inquiry. Before I introduce our esteemed panel guests and participants, uh, can I just point out to everyone, please, that down the bottom of your screens, you should have something called chat. And if you'd like to press on that and send some questions or some comments, please feel free to do so. And I will do the best I can, uh, as inadequate as that will inevitably be, to keep up with you and to pass on your questions uh, to uh, those sitting at the table with me. Uh, and yes, the recording and the slides will be posted and emailed to everyone that's registered. So that will also be done. Now, moving on to our panelists. If I could start with the Honourable John Byrne, AORFD. Um, you'll hear me referring to our guest as Judge. Uh, judges told me to call him John, but for reasons that I suspect almost all of you will appreciate, there is no prospect of me calling <laughs> John. So I'm going to continue to call John Judge. <laughs> uh, Judge took Silk in 1982. I mean, he's well known to all of you, so I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, Judge took Silk in 82, was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1989, was appointed Senior Judge Administrator in 2007, and retired in 2017. And most recently was the Commissioner as Chair in the Paradise Dam Commission of Inquiry. And we are very grateful to you, Judge, for agreeing to uh, participate in today's session, so thank you very much. Our other panellists are all level 27 barristers, each experienced in complex and uh, difficult and challenging matters. Uh, and I'll introduce each of, each of them to you in turn and by order of seniority. Uh, uh, Matthew Hickey. Uh, Matthew, before becoming a barrister almost a decade ago or thereabouts, mm -hmm was a founding member of the Ten Tenets, that fabulous uh, group of very talented singers. And the experience that Matthew obtained uh, from traveling around the world, dealing with people, and the performance skills had obviously served him very well. Uh, Matthew, as a barrister, Matthew has uh, regularly been briefed to appear in commissions of inquiries and in inquests, including the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Sexual Abuse, where he was retained by the state of Queensland, and also the Dreamworld Inquest, uh, having appeared for one of the family, one of the deceased. Uh, Claire Schneider, prior to coming to the bar, uh, Claire was a solicitor at a global law firm and was associate to Justice Keane when his honour was uh, in our Queensland Court of Appeal. As a barrister, Claire has relevantly for today's purposes, appeared with senior counsel assisting the Royal Commission into the misconduct, I say alleged misconduct, uh, in the banking, superannuation and financial services industry. And finally, Sophie Gibson. Uh, Sophie, before coming to the bar, also worked at a global law firm and was also associate to Justice King, uh, this time the boss is on the uh, High Court. Uh, and as counsel, uh, Sophie relevantly appeared with me in the Paradise Dam Commission of Inquiry. And uh, I also know that I got in uh, just in time because others uh, from for other parties also contacted Sophie, uh, looking to retain her to act in the um, commission. So, Moving on, I'm just excuse me, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm just going to press share screen, get the slides going, and hopefully I won't knock that up. Oops, there you go, all working. Now, Judge, if I could start with you. Given your experience as both a judge, obviously, and, and a commissioner, are you able to give us uh, some insight into the key differences between uh, the adversarial litigation that we're more accustomed to and a commission of inquiry? Could I begin by you know, reviewing some of the principal features of litigation, first of all? Uh, it concerns a resolution of a contest 
between parties and is typically concerned with establishing rights and remedies. Secondly, the dispute, because that's what it is, is adjudicated and within the judicial branch of government, uh, applying familiar adversarial techniques. Thirdly, both the issues to be decided and the information on which the decision will be based, that's to say the evidence, are chosen by the disputants. The court or the tribunal has usually no role in either gathering or presenting the evidence that's done by the parties for practical reasons, which include that the court lacks both the resources to investigate the facts and the inclination to do so. And fourthly, the parties have some but limited compulsory processes available to them to assist in the investigation of the facts. They can, for example, invoke the court's subpoena powers uh, to bring documents or witnesses along. And there is also the question of disclosure of documents, which provides a means by which information can be extracted from others and it need be produced in evidence. Now, if you contrast that with the typical commission of inquiry, there are some very significant differences. Um, first of all, the commission functions as an arm of the executive government, not the judicial. Secondly, as the name suggests, it is an inquiry that is undertaken. Contested questions are assessed in an inquisitorial system. And what that means for practical purposes is that the effective parties in a commission of inquiry don't get to choose the forum. They can't choose the issues to be decided. And perhaps most importantly, they don't get, a, they don't get to choose the information which will be the subject matter of the investigation. In other words, the evidence to be adduced is no longer exclusively to be decided by the parties. The commission decides what facts are going to be investigated and also how that will happen. The commission also has extensive powers available under statute to compel the giving of information to the inquiry uh, through witnesses and the production of documents, both in private and in public. And the commission will have the staff and the budget to enable it to undertake this task. Now, I think that these differences mean that the roles and responsibilities of lawyers, both barristers and solicitors, before a commission of inquiry are markedly different than in litigation. And this, I think, is true whether the lawyers are appointed to assist the commission or whether they are chosen by their clients to represent the interests that may be affected during the course of the investigation. Uh, today, I'm sure we'll explore these differences and what they mean for lawyers who are engaged in a commission of inquiry in whatever role. But if I can just give one example, I think illustrates the point I'm attempting to make. At a trial, as we all know, the evidence of a witness will be taken by the advocate for the party in whose interest that witness has been called. And the questions that will be posed will be put by that advocate to elicit the information in a way that the advocate regards as helpful to the client's case. In a commission of inquiry, however, typically the evidence that's to be adduced from a witness who is delivering evidence orally will not be taken by counsel in a party's interest. The evidence will be produced by counsel appointed to assist the commission. And so the way in which evidence emerges at an inquiry is commonly quite different and in many ways more challenging than in the conduct of one. Thank you, Judge. Uh, Mr. Hickey, from a party's perspective, why is it important to consider, or assuming it's important to consider, uh, the mandate or the terms of reference uh, that apply to a commission? As the judge said, 
commissions of inquiry differ markedly from the, from litigation proper because the parties haven't had the opportunity to set the the issues that will be in dispute as between them. And the mandate or terms of reference are really quite important because it's those which give the parties the first clue of what it is ultimately they're going to be investigated um, about. And they're relevant both in terms of the preparation to the Commission of Inquiry, but then also to the conduct. And I'll deal with, with that um, in turn. As to the preparation of the, the inquiry, they're important because they give a party, assuming you're for a party who, who will be called before the Commission, some clue as to what your potential liability might be. They're the first things which might tip you off to the fact that there's something that you might have to be apprehensive about being asked about. They tip you off as to the people within your organisation who might be required to give evidence. They tip you off about the investigations you, you might need to take um, by way of providing documents and that kind of thing. They're the first clue that you have about what's coming um, to adopt a, a, an inelegant analogy, they're a little bit like the Bureau of Meteorology telling you what kind of bad weather's on the horizon. And so in that way, they inform your preparation. They tell you something about the kinds of things your client might need to do in terms of getting itself ready for what's coming. But they also tell you as a lawyer something about the kind of team that might need to be assembled in order to best support the client given the inclement weather it should expect. And that might mean, for instance, do we require a team with a silk and a junior and a whole army of junior solicitors? Do we really only require one junior that could appear in order to take evidence from somebody in particular? Um, how much money is going to be, need to be thrown at this thing? The earlier you can turn your mind to these kinds of questions, um, the more likely you're going to be to be able to shape your strategy. And that's the second point really, I suppose I'd, I'd wish to talk about, is that the mandate in the terms of reference tell you um, what's going to be the hot topic or most likely to be the hot topic. And in my experience, you all always have some sense by reference to the terms of reference about where the danger points are for you. And you will always have a sense of how you wish to play um, your public face in respect of this thing. And as the judge identified, this is, um, it requires a very different skill set in dealing with a commission of inquiry than that which typically you would engage in um, pure litigation. And in a way, lawyers have to turn their minds, whether they like it or not, in order to successfully represent their clients to what um, public face will be presented by the litigation, by rather the forensic decisions that you make in dealing with the Commission of Inquiry's uh, requests. Um, so you need to ask your client, you need to seek instructions about, well, what, what is the public position you wish to take on this particular issue, irrespective of what the legal answer might be, because the two aren't necessarily consistent. And then the third and final thing I wish to say is that once the Commission is on, um, on the path to hearings and indeed when hearings are occurring, the evidence that, that is called for must be confined to the things that are within the mandate in the terms of reference. And for you as a, as a, as a lawyer representing a client, you want always to ensure that um, if there are things that you're being asked to provide or that your clients are being asked to give evidence about, which are not within the frames of the terms of reference, and that, of course, gives you a proper basis for objecting to production, both in terms of giving evidence or documents. So in the absence of pleadings, as one might expect in the in litigation in the strict sense, the mandate for terms of reference are fundamental to your preparation and um, appearance at the Commission. Thank you, Steve. And uh, Claire, does the stated length of duration of the matter um, uh, pose any um, importance in the commencement of the matter when you're retained? If you're returning to the future. Yeah, thanks, Nick. I certainly, I think, um, in the same way that uh, the judges made the observation about the differences between the adversarial system and commissions of inquiry, and then Matt in talking about the terms of reference then as being a critical document in terms of understanding the difference between a commission and how it's likely to play out for you and your client as opposed to an adversarial system. Um, the time period that the commission is slated to run across is the next clue that you potentially have about um, where this um, kind of slightly more amorphous journey may take you as opposed to adversarial litigation. So in the same way that um, commissions vary greatly from adversarial litigation, not all commissions themselves are equal and they vary significantly in um, the process that they undertake and the scope of the inquiry that they undertake. And often a lot of that is driven at least to some extent 
by the time period between when the executive order is made and the commission terms of reference are granted and the commissioner is required to report either on an interim basis and then on a final basis. And I think um, we've all seen examples where um, although extensions can be sought, they're not things that are easily sought by commissioners and commissioners are very keen to report within their required time frame and on budget. And that has significant um, knock-on effects in terms of the way in which the commission will be conducted, which is your next clue um, when preparing to gear up for one of these matters. Things like um, the length of any oral hearings and the likely timing of any oral hearings, um, whether the commission will proceed by way of case study, if the terms of reference are extremely broad, it will, and the time for reporting is much narrower, it will naturally be impossible. Um, for the Commission to proceed down every um, every rabbit hole and there may be a case study approach which is adopted. Um, so the, the time that the Commission has to report is an important consideration um, to look at in tandem with the terms of reference when you're trying to get a feel for um, where this all may go and what your client's role in it may be. Thanks, Claire. So, uh, still focusing on the differences between the Commission and the adversarial trial, can you give us some um, comments about the breadth of power and how the rules of evidence apply in the Commission? So as the judge mentioned earlier, commissions of inquiry are creatures of statute and each state as well as the Commonwealth has enacted legislation which provides for the facilitation of commissions in that jurisdiction. Although each piece of legislation is different, all contain broadly analogous provisions and each of the relevant enactments grants a commission of inquiry very strong powers to compel the production of evidence to it. This includes the power to summon a person to the hearing, to give evidence or to produce documents. In practical reality, notices to produce often have very short deadlines and require an enormous amount of work um, to respond. Similarly, there's a significant amount of work involved in preparing a witness to respond to a notice of, to appear. But failure to comply has serious consequences. For example, Section 5.2 of the Queensland Act provides that a failure to comply with a summons or a notice to produce is punishable by 200 penalty points or up to a year's imprisonment. It's also a contempt which is referable to the Supreme Court. So on a practical note, there's very little that a party's legal representatives can do to shield that party from the often very onerous conditions of these summons. This is sometimes difficult for litigators to wrap their heads around because you don't have the usual tools that you would utilise in adversarial litigation to protect your client's interests. You can't get together with the other side and agree directions. The issues aren't nicely confined to the pleadings. And as we've mentioned, the terms of reference are often drafted in quite a broad way. So it's difficult to object sometimes on the grounds of relevance. And there's also no formal procedure for applying for extensions of time to comply. So these issues are important to canvas with your clients from the outset. The message needs to be that once this process starts, it will be very onerous and time consuming and potentially very expensive. So it's important to explain to your clients that there's not really a lot that you can do as a lawyer to protect them once the process sort of gets going. And more than once. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Judge, is there anything that you'd like to add to what Sophie has said in terms of the breadth of power? I think it can be useful for lawyers wherever possible to seek to negotiate these things with counsel assisting or the solicitors assisting the inquiry. And I'm sure we'll return to this thing as this mm -hmm. session develops. Uh, that kind of cooperation can be both in the client's interests and conduce to the efficient conduct of the inquiry. The other thing I would say is that, um, and it takes up the point that both Matthew and Sophie have made, it's often said that there are no rules of evidence applicable in the Commission of Inquiry, but it's only true up to a point. The fundamental rule of evidence, that is to say, that information which is relevant is admissible, and information that is not relevant is not admissible, 
holds true in the Commission of Inquiry also. But it does so because the terms of reference are the source of the Commission's inquiry to act. And the Commission may not lawfully extend its inquiry beyond the true scope of the terms of reference. And so uh, they will establish, I think Matthew's already made, the relevance of the issues that may be the subject of investigation. And that provides the parameters for the range of information that may be produced by in documents or by testimony. Mm. Thank you, George. And uh, Sophie, privilege is something that we as, uh, as lawyers uh, protect quite zealously at every given opportunity. Uh, in the context of the Commission of Inquiry, is there anything about privilege that uh, we should raise? You're not going to get much joy out <laughs> of this answer. But uh, the right to claim privilege can be wholly or partly abrogated by the relevant statute. Um, and the Queensland Act, for example, provides that the person is not entitled to refuse to answer a question or produce any document on the basis of self-incrimination privilege. Although Section 14A provides that any statement made by a witness during the Commission is not admissible in evidence against that witness in any future civil or criminal proceeding, although that exemption doesn't apply to documents, records, books or property which have been disclosed. The legal professional privilege is maintained. That's right. Yeah. I also just wanted to mention um, in respect of the rules of evidence, although they don't strictly apply, Parties should keep in mind how much weight is likely to be given to the evidence being adduced in support of their position. For example, in the inquiry that Nick and I did together, we made sure that a report that was produced by our expert um, complied with the expert rules, um, the requirements under Rule 428 of the UCPR and the relevant um, federal court rules. Although whether or not the report complied didn't affect its admissibility into evidence, we felt as though the evidence would be given more weight if the report set out the expert's qualifications, the instructions, um, and the material facts on which he relied. And, and uh, I remember the conversation we had was also directed towards um, emphasising to the expert each of those things that he was declaring. So he really focused his attention on independence and not being there just as an advocate for us or for our client. Mm. So that was the other reason that we thought that was important to do. Uh, and in the course of preparing for the CPD, I, I, I thought it was really interesting the different, percept, the, the different perceptions people had depending on what side of the bar table or the bench one was sitting on. And uh, the, one of the comments that was made that, that I wouldn't mind discussing collectively uh, whilst we're talking about rules of evidence don't strictly apply, uh, procedure, procedural fairness is king. I think that was one of the comments that was made. Now, as someone who's only ever acted for a party, I found that really funny. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in an ironic way. Um, so, Judge, if I could start with you about, about yeah, procedural fairness is king, particularly from your perception. The most important aspect of the Commission of Inquiry concerns procedural fairness is the responsibility to notify you know, those who are likely to be affected of any adverse inference that's on the cards. And usually that means alerting them to the evidence which might justify a conclusion that's adverse to their economic interests or, for example, to reputation. Everyone knows that this must be done, but there are nice questions of judgment that affect when it's done. It must be done in sufficient time to enable the party to whom notice is given to respond, either by producing evidence, or perhaps more accurately, inviting the Commission to take other evidence into consideration, or by addressing arguments through submissions that will be made. From the Commission's point of view, this requires attention to be given at a relatively early stage to the timing it must be done in sufficient time also to enable the Commission to complete its report yeah. on the fixed date. Uh, and so there's a tendency, I think, to try to calculate the date by which this must be done by working back from the time when the report must be delivered. Uh, this is perhaps the most challenging 
aspect that relates to procedural fairness. There is another that I mentioned. A commission often has to exercise nice judgment, not only about when notice is given, but the content of the notice. Let me give you an example. Not every item of evidence that's potentially adverse should, I think, be given to a party, either as soon as it's received or in some cases ever. I say that because it may be that during the course of the investigation, some information at the first rush looks to be disadvantageous to the party, and that might trigger an obligation to give notice. Might, as the investigation proceeds, prove to be without substance altogether. And so if you give notice of every potential adverse item of evidence, you're likely to require the parties sometimes to do unnecessary work and to put in jeopardy the time frame that needs to be put in place right from the start of the commission to ensure that it finishes on time. Everyone, I'm sure, at least all the lawyers, are conscious of the need to accord procedural fairness. But as I say, there are no strict rules about the most effective way in which to do it. Thank you, Judge. And Claire, I think you're the one who coined the procedural fairness as King phrase that uh, I mentioned. Is there something as someone who acted for the council assisting team that would like to add? I think at the end of the day, as the judges said, although, and it picks up on something Sophie said as well, although the rules of evidence don't apply, um, the rationale for a lot of our rules of evidence still need to be afforded significant consideration when it comes to the reliability of evidence um, and the use to which evidence can and ought be put. Um, and at the end of the day, the role of a commission is to investigate and to report on findings of fact and, and conclusions that are able to be drawn. Um, and a commission is hampered from doing that if, if there are concerns about the procedural fairness or inappropriate use of evidence. And so that is why, um, although the rules of evidence and um, the court rules of procedure, as we are accustomed to them as litigators, uh, don't apply, um, the rationale that underpins them will often be fairly tightly observed by the Commission to ensure that um, its work and the work of all the lawyers who are contributing to the work of the Commission um, is used in a valuable way to achieve the outcome which is to provide the report in accordance with the terms of reference. Thank you. Now I'll switch to the other side of the uh, table in the confine of the courtroom. Hickey and uh, Gibson, anything you'd like to add from the perspective of those who appear on behalf of the parties? Look, the, inevitably when you're appearing for a party, you always feel like you've been taken by surprise. And, and when we were preparing for this, I think I was, having only ever appeared on that side, was um, surprised, I suppose, by the insights that the judge gave about that and similarly clear about there might well be legitimate reasons why decisions have been taken behind the scenes to to defer things until later or not to um, trouble you with things that might end up being non-issues and of course when you're on this side of the bar table um, you know that any issue that is thrown up at you is one that you immediately become spooked and fearful about and it creates a scurry of activity for the teams behind the scenes so i think it's um it's useful to have that that kind of insight and to, to be guided, I suppose, in a way by um, by how you approach these things. And it, and it feeds into another topic that we'll talk about in due course, which is why it's important to have um, good and cooperative and collaborative relationships with others who are involved in the commission, because it, um, it, it makes that process much more um, useful, ultimately, I think, for your client. Yes. So? Oh, I don't have anything to add to Thank you. All right, now moving on. Now, Schneider, you're going to talk to us about tooling up, but from the perspective of the commission team. And uh, do you mind when you uh, comment, answering a question that's come through from the audience, which is uh, whether or not there is something that defines the role of council assistant? That's a difficult question to answer because I think. Um, at the outset, uh, the, the nature of each commission varies greatly. 
um, and therefore the role of the council assisting team and the office of the assisting team uh, will vary greatly. Um, and so once again, when it comes to the commission forming um, and getting its processes set in place, uh, the, the fundamentals will always come back to terms of reference and time. Uh, and that will often dictate uh, the, the timing of hearings and the length of any hearings. Um, and it will often lead to the early appointment of lead counsel assisting and lead solicitor assisting, and then what will follow is that those teams will be built as they need to be. Much in the same way that parties might start by deciding they want to brief a, a particular silk or a particular junior um, to have them locked in, uh, and then the team will build as the issues build. And so where that all leaves um, when you're acting for a client to understand is to understand in those early, that early period of forming a commission, there will be a lot of information released from the commission about um, how the commission is to proceed, uh, who the people are at the commission who are involved in certain aspects. And that starts to give you an idea to pick up on something Matthew said about who are the people within the commission team who are likely to become the people that you need to interact with um, in order to best represent your client and achieve your client's interests. So um, those early decisions will be made and that information will be made public. The nature of the commission is that it is a public beast um, and information is published publicly in the modern era on the websites as soon as it is decided upon and signed off on. And so remaining on top of that information in those early weeks, I think, is critical uh, to understanding the likely path that the Commission may take. Yes. Thank you. And Mr Eakey, if I could turn to you, uh, tooling up from the perspective of the party. Look, there are three, um, three broad groups of people that I think one needs to turn one's mind to when presented with the likelihood of a, of a Commission of Inquiry. That, that need to be considered. The first is lawyers, the second is within the client, and the third is external providers. As to lawyers, I think it's really quite important to um, consider not just who is it that you typically like to work, work with, but who brings the right kind of expertise and personal qualities on any particular matter which is going to be necessary for the, for the substance of the particular commission of inquiry. And when this is done successfully, um, it, it is a very powerful tool for the client. Um, and what I mean by that is, as I mentioned earlier, it's not just a legal process, this, but it's often a public relations exercise. And so I have in mind, without mentioning it, a particular um, inquiry in which I was involved, where there was a party who was, let's say, wearing the black hat. Uh, and they knew, it seemed to me from the outside, that it would be necessary to aggressively cross-examine some people who would put adverse things to them, to them but also to have a very... Um, effective and friendly and, and amiable public facing profile. So they engaged two silks who was obvious to me were um, were given separate jobs. One was to be the head kicker and to aggressively cross-examine those who needed to be cross-examined and the other was to be pleasant and um, outwardly amiable. Um, and so I, I, I use that as an example of where it's necessary to give thought to what what's the purpose the barristers in the courtroom will serve quite apart from advancing legal arguments. Then, of course, there's the solicitors that will be supporting. And within the solicitors team, real thought needs to be given to what tasks will be necessary to be, un to be undertaken. Um, in some commissions, there's an awful lot of grunt work. And, of course, it's a, it's a matter of public record that many firms were flooded in the banking commission with the, the amount of work that needed to be done in going through disclosure and preparing statements and the like. But it is important as early as possible to understand what are the likely um, jobs that will need to be done and to educate the client as to how much money they're going to have to throw at this thing in order to be um, properly uh, representing their interests. That leads me to the client side, which is within the client side, it's necessary immediately to tool up, um, to turn its mind to what's, what are the issues that we're going to become confronted by? Who within our organisation can answer these questions? Who within our organisation, if, if anybody, can provide the, the practical support to the lawyers who are going to be representing us in order to get the documents, in order to hunt down the, the, the relevant facts that will need to be had, in order to talk to the people within the organisation who can provide the answers. Something that's often overlooked in my experience is that this provides um, an awful lot of work for the human resources sections of big organisations. There's a lot of um, supportive staff that needs to happen that people are often taken by surprise with. 
Um, so there really isn't any part of the client's organisation which is left untouched, I think, by, um, by commissions of inquiry, especially if they're in the, the gun. And the third thing is external uh, providers. And by that, I mean experts, um, legal technology suppliers, and indeed uh, public relations and media support. As we've already mentioned, um, these things are public facing. They tend to, to engender a lot more interest than um, ordinary litigation usually um, engenders. And so it's necessary to have um, people who have expertise in how to deal with the public, how to deal with the media, uh, how to, to ensure that your people um, know how to do all of those things. And again, those things cost money. And the sooner you, you get the client to understand that this is a fast moving beast typically, if not going away, um, and as much as they might prefer to bury their heads in the sand and ignore the, the budgetary consequences that are going to follow, they really need to take it seriously because of the coercive powers that Sophie's talked about. Um, there are real problems if they just ignore it. So those are the three uh, areas I think it's important for certainly for a lawyer in the first instance to, to turn his or her mind to in helping a client work out what it needs to do. And we should never forget that um, slowness might end up being misinterpreted by some as intentionally uh, trying to avoid certain things yeah. and being obstructive. So all of those type of things feed into the, the, the character of, again, my experience, the character of a, a commission employee, which, which really is much more public than litigation and engaging. I mean, yes, justice is public and mm. people can come in and out of court, but the, the commissions tend to attract a lot more publicity. Well, then typically there's a matter of public controversy which has given rise to it in exactly. the first place. The, the, the public at, at large are more interested in it yes. than a, a dispute between private, private individuals or companies. And I think that really underscores your comment about it being an intersection between the legal world, which is black and white and you know, very clinical in its approach, mm and the PR exercise that is inevitably engaged if you're acting for a party who yes. is a particularly high profile participant in the process. And uh, there's a real skill in, in walking that line between those two processes. Uh, I, again, I think. Right, now. May I just say something? No, you may not. <laughs> <laughs> in relation to the, the question that was put concerning the role of council assisting. Now, again, it, it'll vary um, somewhat from uh, commission to commission. But anyone that isn't particularly well resourced, I think barristers need to appreciate that if they are appointed as council assisting, they are not merely advocates of public hearings. They will be expected to think through and in many instances, actually conduct investigations. Some of them may be reluctant to do this, thinking of it as solicitor's work. But in a small commission where there aren't the resources to justify the usual bifurcation of responsibilities, council assisting must be willing to participate in the investigation. Mm -hmm. Secondly, the question is, uh, needs to be, that needs to be thought about is, what are the relations between the council assisting and the commission? I, this is an important thing to address because I've been encouraging, and I'm sure others will, to, for the lawyers to discuss among themselves the progress of things, the scope of notices to produce and so on. And when barristers who act for clients uh, engage in the process of negotiation like this, one of the things I want to know is, who do you speak for if you're counsel assistant? Am I dealing with the agent for the commission or am I not? Now, I take the view that, generally speaking, um, what counsel assisting ought to do is what the title of the position suggests. They're there to assist, but they don't decide. And a critical aspect of this, in my view, is that the, whatever goes on behind the scenes, nothing should be done to indicate to the parties that whatever counsel assisting submits at the end of the case is the view that will be adopted by the commission. Mm. The parties need to have confidence that the commissioners will be assisted by council assisting, but will not be at their beck and call. Yes. And uh, if parties don't have that confidence, then uh, it's destructive of the process. That means that some distance has to be maintained between council assisting and the commission in the interests of public confidence in the process. On the other hand, there are times when 
and council assisting will need to engage with the commission to respond sensibly to these negotiations about the scope of the documents to be produced, the witnesses who might be called, and sometimes even the administrative arrangements about when things will happen. So it's a challenging position, and for many barristers, um, the experience is novel. I think the fact that that question is asked is indicative of the fact that it's a bit of a mystery mm. sometimes. Mm. It's one of those things that we all know about and we hear about, mm. but, but often one finds practitioners aren't sure what the role entails and indeed whether you're permitted to talk to them to engage in the kind of negotiation that you've referred to judge in the way that you would do as a matter of course in adversarial litigation of course you would engage with your opponent if he or she was sensible um, but but i think some people think that that it's improper to to engage with the council assisting in that way and of course it's not improper and it's a quite an important part of getting the job done efficiently and properly absolutely mm. i think Lee, you you've commented mm. quite appropriately that uh, if a question is raised with council assisting or council assistance team and it's something that you don't want to or won't answer, you'll tell us pretty quickly. Mm. Uh, so, you know, the worst that you'll be told is, no, I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully that's the worst. <laughs> uh, moving on to the next slide, um, seeking leave. Uh, so, when, when should that be done? When do you make the decision to do it, if at all? and what's involved in doing so. So parties don't have leave to appear to be represented in a commission of inquiry as of right. Uh, commissions have budgetary and time restraints as we've been discussing. So not all parties with an interest in the subject matter of the inquiry will be given leave. It's a good idea to keep an eye out for the practice directions issued by the commission as those will usually dictate the process for applying for leave. Um, any application is usually required to be made prior to the commencement of the hearing in writing and you can be expected to identify why the party has an interest in the terms of reference, how their interest may be materially affected by the outcome of the inquiry, whether the party has any particular knowledge or expertise in some or all parts of the terms of reference which would enable that party to assist the Commission. So it's important to think about applying for leave early for obvious reasons um, and not leaving it to the last minute, not least so that the Commission can appropriately timetable the hearing. Thanks, so. And uh, Mr Hickey, uh, question of openings. You're, you're instructed, you're acting for a party. Um, what goes, what's the thinking and the strategizing you go through on deciding whether you want to open and whether or not you're going to ask permission to open? Um, of course the council assisting will open. The council assisting will say some things at the opening of the commission which will give the parties and indeed the world at large a sense of what this is going to be about, what the, um, the major issues of all the issues of, of inquiry are going to be, who's expected to be heard from, that kind of thing. Um, so it doesn't necessarily follow that that each and every party will then be given an opportunity to say something by way of opening. So there's a decision to be made about whether indeed you will you will ask to say something by way of opening. And of course, you'd expect to have some sort of sensible explanation as to why you should be permitted to do that. But as to the decision of whether or not you should, I think the major um, strategic uh, reason to consider giving an opening, particularly if you're the person who's in the, the gun, is that it gives you an opportunity at the very beginning of things to um, if not control the narrative, to at least plant the seed of where the alternative case may be. Um, often, in my experience in commissions that I've been involved in, there's a very obvious um, factual finding that will be made. There's an event which has occurred, or there's a particular problem which has been discovered, and everybody thinks they have an understanding of what it's all about. Um, and it might be important for your client's purposes to establish some sort of counter-narrative some counter explanation and it may well simply mirror what you'll ultimately say by way of closing because you know all of the things which will be discovered through the course of the, um, the inquiry. But it might be quite important for you to plant that seed early. It, it might be your opportunity to explain to the commissioner, look, you're going to hear a lot of evidence about a whole lot of things, but this is in fact what you're ultimately going to discover. Um, and of course, um, the judge might have a contrary view to this, but my approach to, to advocacy is always that the person making the decision is a human being. We are all um, we are we are all we are all trained, of course, as lawyers to look at the evidence before us. But we we are 
susceptible to persuasion, even at mm. a subconscious level. And so if there is an, an alternative narrative to be had, you should plant that seed as early as possible, particularly given there are no pleadings. In ordinary adversarial litigation, you've got the opportunity to poison the well with the defence. But here, um, the best you can do is perhaps to put on early statements, but an opening gives you the opportunity to, to tell the commissioner and everybody else there is, an, there is an alternative story here. And as you mentioned earlier, I suppose, you, Matthew, that the commissions are called as a consequence of a matter of public controversy or something that's happened. Yeah. And uh, if you're acting for the party who's in the gun, you may well need to take a stand that is contrary to the public outrage that has been expressed. Uh, not suggesting, of course, for a minute that the outrage is not justified or that people don't genuinely believe it, mm. but planting that seed could become critically important in terms of how you can try to orchestrate it within the confines of your role and your ethical obligations, of course. Uh, the story that you want to tell. And that might not be merely defensive, but it might be deflecting. Absolutely. Uh, if, if everyone apprehends that you're the one with the target on your back, but you want to say, no, it's not us, it's them. Mm. That's your opportunity, both as a matter of um, defensive strategy, I suppose, but, but, but also one of fairness. If you're ultimately going to be submitting that it's not us, it's them, then you need to tell them as early as possible um, that's the approach you're going to be taking. Yes. And, and I think... Um, that's another reason why you might consider opening in that way. Thank you. And um, Judge, uh, going back briefly to the question of Lee, uh, is there anything you want to say about when that is appropriate to be given or when it won't be given? Ordinarily, uh, I think most commissions would operate on the basis that if an economic interest or a reputational interest might be adversely affected, then the party would be offered an opportunity uh, to participate through leave and occasionally someone who hasn't applied for leave might be encouraged mm -hmm. to do so. Mm -hmm. But otherwise I think um, Sophie has well canvassed the considerations that Thank you, Joe. Right now, some practical considerations. Schneider, going to you, mm -hmm. uh, if we could, well, I think we've actually already discussed this mm -hmm. briefly, but be familiar with a range of things. Mm -hmm. uh, the practice directions, the document management system, mm. I think it's something we haven't really touched on yet. Yeah, I think um, we've spoken about the practice directions and the importance of getting on top of those very quickly. Um, I think it, it's a feature of um, the modern world that um, the number of documents that may fall within the scope of any inquiry are likely to be significant. Um, they can go back for a very long period. Um, and therefore the scope of documents that might be caught by a request to produce or a notice to produce issued by the Commission team could be very substantial. Um, and Sophie and, and Matthew have touched on those considerations for your client. In terms of your team, uh, understanding very quickly uh, how electronic documents are to be managed and what the system is and making sure that you understand that your system is ultimately compatible with the system that you're required to produce documents into um, will save you a lot of pain and suffering, I think, in the future. So that very practical issue of setting up early on an appropriate platform for the management of documents as you're collecting them and reviewing them is critical, particularly when you add the overlay of the volume of documents likely to be caught and the timeframes that you're likely to be dealing with. Um, the second point that I think uh, early consideration needs to be given to is um, the prospect that you, your client may have commercially sensitive or confidential material that is likely to be caught by the terms of reference and therefore may be the subject of a notice to produce. Um, if that is the case, understanding early on what the Commission's approach is to commercially sensitive material, recalling of course that uh, these are public uh, inquiries. Uh, they, the practice has shown that they publish um, exhibits and materials that are produced to them uh, so that they're publicly available. So having an understanding as to what you need to do to make claims for confidentiality and commercial sensitivity and what the comm Commission's preferred approach to, for example, redacting documents or summarising documents in a way that excludes any commercially sensitive material. Um, the same can be observed in relation to legal professional privilege. Um, if it is likely that your the scope of the term of reference is such that advice to your client are likely to be caught 
understanding what the Commission's approach is to claims of legal professional privilege and contested claims of legal professional privilege. Because once again, you're operating in an environment where the timeframes you will be working to, in some cases, will be unlike anything you've ever seen before. Um, and so having an understanding very early on as to if these issues arise, how am I going to deal with them uh, to protect my client and do it in an efficient but comprehensive way um, are very important. Thanks, Chloe. And Mr. Hickey, witnesses and managing yeah. Look, we've already spoken uh, in a number of the previous topics about um, the need to turn your mind early to who might be the, the witnesses within your organisation who will give the evidence. So assuming that you've done that, um, you're also confronted by the fact that the Commission itself might have a view about who it should be on behalf of your organisation who will give the evidence. A practical consideration um, for you and, and for your client is the manner in which that evidence will be given. Now, the mode with which most people would be familiar, I suppose, is by the provision of a statement. Um, that's the, the usual approach in commission that is of inquiry. The evidence in chief will be the provision of a statement. And then typically, the counsel assisting will lead the witnesses. The judge has said earlier that they will be the person who will ask questions by reference initially to the statement. But there are other ways in which evidence might be obtained in the commission of inquiry. One way, for instance, is that you, your client or your witness rather, might be invited to come in for an interview with the, the counsel assisting or other um, officers behind the scenes, and a transcript of that conversation taken, and then that becomes a form of evidence. Um, similarly, with experts, there are different processes by which their, their evidence can be given. Experts report, of course, is one, but frequently one sees um, experts being asked to participate in conclaves, both separately and in front of the commission uh, increasingly. So one needs to turn their mind to um, What's the most effective way for your particular witness to give the particular evidence that they're asked to give? Having a regard to the things that they're asked about, typically one receives from the commission a list of questions that the witness is asked to respond to. Um, and so in terms of the practicalities of providing that evidence, particularly if it's in, in statement form, I think it's always, um, it behoves those representing witnesses to try to tailor the evidence in a way which minimizes the opportunity for further questions to be asked. Um, when they are asked to get in the box and defend their statements, I suppose. Um, but of course, as I mentioned earlier in, in referring to HR people, one of the things that I think people grossly underestimate is the impact that, that these things have on the individuals who have to give evidence, particularly um, lay evidence. For the reasons we've already canvassed, it being a very public spectacle, it can be very stressful and confronting for uh, people. Often they are asked hard questions and frequently, um, although you internally know who would be best place to answer questions about particular things, for whatever reason, the Commission of Inquiry might have a particular interest in very junior members of your staff who don't necessarily have all of the answers. It can be a very, um, very difficult process for them and I think lawyers have to prepare witnesses well and they need to prepare their clients to have their internal um, human resources processes ready to support um, individuals because it could be a very um, difficult process. Yeah, and uh, we've already talked about the reality that your witness, your clients, witnesses or staff, for example, aren't actually being called by you. Mm -hmm. They're they're examined by counsel assisting or a member of the counsel assisting team, and again, not um, completely different to the way litigation is normally conducted. It's not done in chief. It, it can, be, it could be, but there's. It's generally done more in the cross-examination style. Mm. Uh, but if you decide you want to re-examine your your own witness or person being called from your client's staff, um, something that I think we've all talked about and all agree is that as a matter of persuasion and trying to give weight to the evidence by your own client's witnesses, you should still nevertheless do it uh, in chief when it's your turn rather than cross-examining. And that way you can say at the end, make the observation to the commissioner who won't, won't escape the commissioner's attention and you've done it that way. You mean, you mean asking questions in the style of chief precisely. rather than asking Dorothy Dixon if you will. Precisely. So don't cross-examine your own witness. Mm -hmm. and get yes or no answers. I mean, you know, don't, uh, for example, don't ask the question. Uh, you built that brilliantly, didn't you? <laughs> yes, of course I did. Everyone else in the room rolls their eyes. <laughs> yes. Um, 
Now, the, the final uh, item on this slide is, is atmosphere, and that might seem an odd topic for uh, some of the uh, audience to understand why we picked it, but each of us, having lived through commissions, uh, acknowledged in our preparation of this uh, CPD that, that atmosphere is actually something that really becomes important and it, uh, it's like nothing else I've experienced in litigation, very different. So Claire, would you like to uh, comment on that? Yeah, I think it, um, it, it comes back to this idea that uh, each commission is a different beast and the subject matter can vary greatly. Um, the difference between doing a commission on a, on a construction project gone wrong is quite different to doing a commission uh, for example, the Institutional Responses Commission, where the subject matter, even within that commission, varies quite greatly. Um, and so if you bring with that the pace, the public nature of the commission, and the pressure that will inevitably be brought to bear upon the lawyers by their clients to make sure that um, things are being done as quickly but as comprehensively as possible, um, you do often find yourself in, in a in a scenario where the pressure is something that you haven't seen before um, and understanding how to deal with that and to come to pick up Matthew's point um, to assist your witnesses in particular to whom this is an if it's an uncomfortable process for you as a lawyer it's an entirely uncomfortable process for the lay people who are called to give evidence um, understanding how to deal with that and some of the things we've already discussed that may assist are things like the relationship, uh, whether you are able to engage with the Office of the Solicitor Assisting or the Office of Counsel Assisting, uh, to, if notices to produce are served that cannot be complied with, um, to discuss breaking it down into tranches. What is the Commission interested in most? Can that be produced on the due date and then tranches to follow? Um, those are tools that can quite appropriately be used uh, to ensure that the work of the Commission is able to proceed on the timetable it requires, uh, but to ask people to achieve the feasible and not the impossible. Thanks, Claire. Now, I think in the course of discussing um, the various topics, we've already commented several times on the importance of the relationship uh, with Council assisting the parties. Uh, but I'll, I'll just ask the question in an open way. Sophie and Claire, is there anything that you'd like to add um, to what's already been said? Judge, thank you. Yeah. We all think it's a good thing. <laughs> and in fact, I, I can't think of a, a, a circumstance where you would not want good relations with council assisting and the council assisting it's, I think it's all the more important if you apprehend you are the one with the target on your back. It seems yes. counterintuitive. You would, you would think you would keep all your, your cards close to your chest, but I think it's all the more important then to try to establish rapport and, um, and cooperative relationships with the council assisting. And that's particularly so where you need council assisting sometimes to tender documents that you wish to tender or to call a witness that you want to call. You can't yeah. decide to do it yourself. Yeah. So you really do need that open communication, I think, with the council assisting team. Actually, Judge, what will happen if, as a party, this, this hasn't occurred to me, which is why I'm asking you the question. So uh, the, the practice directions make it clear that the only party who can tender is council assisting. Let's assume hypothetically, council assisting says to me, no, I'm not, I'm not going to tender that document. Uh, how would you react to Matthew or I or Sophie standing up and, and saying, I'd, I'd like to make an application to tender a document? Would you hear that application? Yes, certainly. Most uh, practice directions would say something like, the evidence will be produced by council assisting unless leave is granted to a party to produce it. So I wouldn't have to get right. Mm. Okay. Well, that makes that easier. Again, not that that's ever happened. <laughs> Anyone to read anything into that <laughs> at all. Uh, and it, the next slide is again, something that we've, I think, broadly touched on. Um, so I'll ask uh, Matthew and Judge, if there's anything in terms of the your witness proposition that you wish to add to what we've already said. For my part, no, I think I've covered all the things already that, that I wish to talk about. May I speak about the application of a rule of practice in Brown and Dunn for a moment? 
I love the fact that, Judge, you are asking me permission. <laughs> <laughs> and yes, you may <laughs> There are really two considerations that underpin the law of practice in Brown and Dunn, which requires that if it's intended to submit that a witness's testimony is not accurate, then the witness ought to be confronted with the suggestion and any evidence to support it. Um, to uh, afford an opportunity to answer it. It's an aspect of fairness. We tend to think of procedural fairness as something that must be extended only by a tribunal or by commissioners. But I think Matthew made the point before that um, fairness is also to be expected of uh, those who appear in the commission. And the observance of the rule of practice in, in Brown and Dunn definitely confuses the efficiencies because you're not confronting the prospect of having to recall a witness. But it's also um, procedurally fair to afford those who are going to have the evidence challenged an opportunity to answer the material that they're mm -hmm. relied upon. And so I, I think um, while it is true that the rules of evidence by and large don't apply, as we said, it is in everyone's interests if the mm -hmm. rule of practice and down have done as it's mm -hmm. Thank you, Judge. Now, uh, once again, this is something we've already touched on, the uh, process of uh, expert evidence. Uh, Mr. Hickey, is there anything you'd like to add to what you've already said about that? Look, probably not really. Um, the, the only thing I would say is that this is one of those things which can never, you, you cannot turn your mind to this early enough. Once you understand what the terms of reference are, start identifying who your expert is, because even if you're not going to tend to a report by them, if it's something that's highly technical, you're going to need their support. Mm -hmm. So don't don't delay upon this. Get cracking as soon as mm -hmm. you can. Mm -hmm. Thanks. And um, Judge, of course, in the commission you ran, your co-commissioner was in fact an expert. Yes. And uh, you found that useful. Yes. Because um, a, a long tradition in the common law of decision makers sitting with advisors. Admiralty jurisdiction has a venerable tradition of having the judge sit with assessors. They don't play a role in making a decision beyond giving advice and assistance to the decision maker. And the same is true in Queensland in the Mental Health Court, where a Supreme Court judge sits with two psychiatrists who are there to assist the judge, but do not participate in making the actual decision. Now, it's different if you're co-commissioner uh, is an expert in the sense that the expert will do more than advise the chair of that expert's views. The expert is actually going to participate mm. in the decision making and that's a novel aspect. But uh, in areas which involve highly technical matters, mm. it's logical enough to have within the decision making body one or more people who are actually experts in the field that's under investigation. Mm -hmm. So I think you'll see more of it. The Commonwealth in particular seems to be attracted to the idea of multiple commissioners with different backgrounds and levels of expertise. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. And something that was done in a Paradise Dan Commission of Inquiry that uh, worked very well, I, I thought, was when uh, multiple experts from different, um, or globally different, of all leading experts in the particular area of dam design and building, uh, you had them all, well, I shouldn't say you had, they were all called at the same time, but it was a mix of people who were genuinely third party experts who'd been retained by a party and uh, employees of engineering firms who were nevertheless experts, but were also giving way evidence, and what, five of them, six of them at the same time? And uh, I had my doubts as to how it was going to work, but it, it worked brilliantly. And uh, no doubt in part to the uh, excellent uh, conducting by Council Assistant, uh, Jonathan Horton, of course, you see. Uh, and uh, the parties cooperating at the beginning and agreeing effectively on the agenda and the types of topics to be dealt with. And each party, of course, being permitted to address the witnesses afterwards or ask questions afterwards. That was something that had been done that I thought was excellent. Mm -hmm. I, I've never seen that done in a, in a trial. 
where a mix of lay and experts have all called them literally at the same time. The taking of current evidence, though, is going to be different typically in the Commission of Inquiry than it is at a trial. At a trial, it's the judge who would be expected to manage the process. Mm -hmm. um, but at a Commission of Inquiry, you have someone who is independent, counsel assistant, mm -hmm. who would take that burden from the commissioners. Mm -hmm. And as you say, work with the lawyers representing the clients to develop an agenda and a process that well, we are at the conclusion. Um, the, the last slide are our, our hot tips, our, our top takeaways, uh, if I can use that expression. Uh, can I thank each of you, Judge? Thank you, Claire, Sophie, thank you very much. For thank you, time. Nicholas. Thank, thank you, your audience. Uh, we hope this has uh, been as much fun for you as it has been for me, <laughs> um, and for hopefully everyone else. So thank you all very much for your time. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.